In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, um, I just want to kind of set that verse up for just a second because if we put it in context, a lot has happened leading up to that verse. Namely, um, of course, um, about 33, 34 years ago at this point in time, Jesus was born, God uh, became flesh and dwelt among men. He lived uh, the first 30 years of his life in, as far as we're concerned, um, I don't want to say obscurity, but we just don't know a lot about it. And then all of a sudden we see that um, for the last three years or so prior to this, Jesus uh, had embarked on his earthly ministry. And during the course of that ministry, most of us know he did some pretty amazing things, right? He uh, had done things like walk on water. He had done things like take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed over 20,000 people. Um, he had raised the dead. He had healed the sick. He had made the blind to see. And he had done all these things because he was the Messiah that had been prophesied about from ancient times in the Old Testament. And in all these attesting works they did, he was literally fulfilling everything that the Bible had said the Messiah would do whenever he came. So that anybody that knew the scriptures and saw Jesus' life, they would have to know this is the Messiah. He's, he's checking every box. He's doing everything that the prophets had said he would do. Okay, um, And what's interesting is that he had done these things in certain places. He had done a lot of these miracles that we talk about um, in places like Capernaum and Galilee and places that are far away from Jerusalem. But some of the most noted ones uh, he actually did really close or right in the streets of Jerusalem. In fact, um, one of the most amazing miracles he ever did was the, the raising of Lazarus of Bethany. And if you know anything about the geography, Bethany was literally a suburb of Jerusalem. It was literally like a mile outside the front gates of Jerusalem. And when he did this, like so many other miracles, he did these miracles right square in the eye of the people that would believe in him and the people that would oppose him. They all saw it in front of their face. There was no denying what they done, what he had done. And then, of course, he was handed over to the Roman authorities by uh, the Jewish priests and the, the Sanhedrin. Uh, and he was put to death on the cross for our sins. He lay in the grave three days, and then the most awesome thing in all of the history of mankind happens. He comes back from the grave. He's resurrected by his own power and by the power of his Father. Uh, and then, all of a sudden, we have a risen Christ proving that his sacrifice was enough, that his perfect life was enough for us to be accepted by God. The, the mark of God's approval was upon him. He lives 40 more days on this earth, and then what happens? He ascends back to heaven. And when he ascended back to heaven, uh, he left his disciples, his followers, with uh, a few commands. And we'll talk about one of them later, but one that he told them uh, primarily was that they were to go to Jerusalem and wait until they would be uh, endued with power, until the Holy Spirit would come upon them. They did. They go to Jerusalem. They wait. They're in prayer. And then all of a sudden, on the next day of Pentecost that comes around, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they all leave out of the upper room, and they're speaking in foreign tongues that none of them knew. And they're speaking in the languages that the people who had come to Jerusalem for that celebration from foreign lands could understand and could hear and could know what they're saying. And what are they doing? They're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Peter stands up when everybody's attention is gained and he gives one of the best gospel expositions in the New Testament right there. And what happens? 5,000 people come to Christ that one day. And the church 
The New Testament church emerges in the first century of A.D. right there. Well, it's at this point that we see in verse 7 that the, the New Testament church has started to kind of form its own uh, internal protocol. You've got deacons established, you've got teaching elders, so on and so forth. And it's at this point in verse 7 that again the word says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And as Luke recorded, excuse me, as Luke recorded this chapter, um, he seems to have kind of set this verse off to itself. If you look in your Bible, you'll see verses 1 through 6, and they're in a block, like a paragraph, and then you'll see verse 8 picks up and starts another paragraph, but verse 7 is set off almost as if it's its own paragraph. Um, you know, if, if we examine this verse in that way, within context, of course, I think we see that there's some amazing things that are happening in this verse, and for a pretty amazing reason. And I would like to say the whole reason we're talking about this is the amazing things that we see happening in this verse are things that we desperately need to see in our community, and I know so many of us need to see in our own family, and every place in the world needs to see these amazing things happening. So let's talk about what they are and why they happen. To begin with, we see that the number of disciples increased greatly. Um, those from all walks of life, all ages, uh, both men and women, rich and poor, came to faith and began to follow Christ in a way that showed true faith. Now, if you read through the Bible, the New Testament especially, it's biblically clear and it seems particularly clear to Luke because he records it so many times in such pointed ways that the term disciple didn't necessarily mean super Christian. You know, I've been in churches before where, um, you know, I've had people kind of tell me that, well, you know, you got Christians and then you've got those super Christians. You know what I'm talking about? Now, those are real disciples of Jesus. Every Christian is not a disciple. That's just not true. That's biblical balderdash. The term disciple in the first century A.D., as well as now, as uh, with all those who seriously apprise Scripture, was synonymous with being a Christian at all. In fact, if you look in Acts 11:26, Luke again writes, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So it's clear, according to Luke's writings in the New Testament, that when you say disciple and you say Christian, you're talking about the same thing. You have to be one to be the other. They're not separable. To be a Christian means to be a disciple of Jesus. And it's also clear in Luke's writings that... Um, being a disciple and thereby Christian comes with certain criteria. Um, if you look in Luke 14, 27, we see that Luke records that Jesus said, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now the point in saying all that is this. When it says that many disciples were added, it, we're not talking about some culturally acceptable form of easy believism that these people were coming to. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in our families. I know there's people in my family. I'm sure there's a lot of people in, in all of our families. There's a lot of people in our community around here uh, who fall short of the mark of true discipleship. There are those around us who feel totally insulated from the gospel because of their hope in their supposed religion. They go to church or they serve in church and they have a, a lot of family tradition they fall back on uh, and they lay claim to and they give in the offering plate and they've been baptized and they don't murder people or get drunk every weekend or run around on their spouse and all those kind of things. However, they've never really come to true repentance and belief. They have never felt the conviction or the weight of being totally lost before God with nothing they can do of their own power to save themselves. They've never felt the horror of knowing that they are separated from God and that only a merciful God can save them. 
They have no abiding fruit. There's nothing really in their life that if you really had to bank everything on them being a believer, that would be a reason to bank on that. All they have is dead faith with no true works that prove a lively faith. And these men and women of Judea were coming to the faith within a context that meant that they would have to pay a price for believing, and they came by the thousands. They went from being the kind of people I just described and the kind of people we all know to people that were all in and they knew that their very life might be on the line. They were disciples of Christ in a time where disciples got their head chopped off. Also, some of the people who had been the most dead set against Jesus came to the faith. The priests who were in the temple when Jesus taught day in and day out and saw His miracles who had still rejected Him. And they even continued to reject His disciples even though His disciples were doing miracles. If you look in um, Acts 4, it says, And as they, the apostles, were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening." These priests were those who were perhaps the most tied to the ritualistic religion of the Jews. And they would have been those who were not just dismissive of the gospel, they'd have been the people that today we'd see them as being totally against the gospel. There are also uh, those around us who may not say it, or they may come out and say it, but they show by their lifestyle that they despise the gospel and they despise the God who gives it. They never darken the door of a church. They don't want to talk about the gospel, uh, and whether they admit it or not, they don't really think they need the gospel. And I think all this comes from a false sense of works-based ideology. They have the idea, there's a lot of people, we all probably can name people that are within a mile or two of where we're sitting right now that think that they're going to heaven not because Christ died and because he's enough, but because they're basically a good old boy or a good old girl, right? We know people like that. I've got people in my family like that. So many of you in here I know have people in your family like that. Or we have people in our families who are very religious. They're just in the wrong religion. They're in a false religion. They, they believe wrongly. You know, these are the kind of people here that, you know, they think that they're going to go to heaven because, like I said, they're a good old boy or a good old girl or they give to St. Jude's or they pitch up hitchhikers or they provide for their family well or whatever. So they just don't listen to the gospel. And other people may not be as passive, but they may actively attack the gospel. Either way, they prove by their actions that they despise the gospel. And this would be similar to the state of these priests who had rejected Jesus and the gospel in the face of so much powerful preaching and so many attesting signs. Yet here we see at this point, finally, some of them become true believers. Now why is it that both of these groups come to the faith at this point? Why is it that after rejecting the gospel in the face of all the miracles and all the signs and all the things that we always look at the Bible and we say, man, if I saw that, there's no way I couldn't believe. We all like to think if we saw the, the five loaves and the two fish get broken and feed everybody, Joe, we'd be like, yes, yeah, sign me up. What church do you go to, Lord? Right? But more didn't than did. And they all saw it. So why is it that at this point, they change, their heart changes when it wasn't changed by all those miraculous things, by even the raising of the dead right in front of their very eyes. It's because of seven words found in the beginning of this verse. It says, the word of God continued to increase. 
So what does it mean that the Word of God continued to increase? The word for increase here is the prolonged form of the verb. What this really means is, is that the spreading of the Word, the preaching and the witnessing of the Gospel was preached and continued to be preached more and more and more and more and more. It just kept being said and kept being said and kept being said. And these people would not shut up about it. They didn't care if people liked it. They didn't care if people hated it. They didn't care if you put them to death. They were not going to shut up about the Gospel. And and the more people that came to Christ, the more people were talking about this Christ that they now have come to know and worship and adore and love even beyond life itself. The gospel kept being preached more and more and more. And I think it's worth pointing out that it is true that the miracles and the wonders that even the disciples and the followers of Jesus saw, it did help them believe that Jesus was the Christ. However, when it was all said and done and their faith was really tested, it was never the miracles that made these men believe. It was always the Word that He spoke that made them believe. If you look in John chapter 6, there's a famous story about so many of Jesus' followers leaving Him when He poses a hard question. Or when He poses a hard saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says that many of His disciples left Him and didn't follow Him anymore. And He looked to the twelve and He said, do you too also want to go? And what did Peter say? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have not the miracles, not the attesting signs. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's the power of Scripture to supply faith is even greater than the most amazing miracles. Jesus makes that clear in His parable of Lazarus and the rich man when He says in Luke 16, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's pointed, isn't it? What Jesus is saying is literally somebody, including Him, could rise from the dead, and if people will not believe because the Word says it, they're not going to believe. No miracle is going to make up for the impact of the Word of God. It's as Paul puts it plainly in Romans 10. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. That's where our faith comes. Now, I say that because of two things. I know that, like I said, we all have friends and we have neighbors and we probably have family members who are not in Christ tonight, who do not know the Lord. And though they may try to hide it, though they put up a facade and when the lights are off at night and everybody's real quiet and everybody's mind starts to settle, everybody really knows the truth, right? I say all this tonight because this should give all of us hope, especially if we know people or are friends with people, or related to people who fall into the categories of the lost that we described before. This means that no matter how insulated we think our friends or our loved ones are from the gospel, we can still trust that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If your friend or your neighbor or your child or your spouse still seems unchanged by the gospel, then I'm here to tell you tonight, all hope is not lost. What we're going to talk about in the youth room and out here and anywhere else on campus tonight, uh, the gospel, when it's proclaimed, gives hope. All hope's not lost. If someone that you know still has air passing in and out of their nostrils, they still have an opportunity to obey Christ in that they can believe and repent. All hope's not lost. Let me ask this question. How many people have really responded to the gospel the first time they heard it? 
Not many. How many people responded the 100th time they heard it? Maybe a few more. How many people responded into the 1,000th time that they heard it? Way more, I think. I don't think too many of us here responded the very first or the second or maybe even the 100th time we heard it. It took it over and over and over. And what happened? Bang! All of a sudden, the lights came on in our heart and we realized, whoa, this is true. And the same thing's true for everybody else that has an ear where they can hear the gospel. And this should also not give us just hope for those that we know they're lost. This should also challenge us in this room who claim to believe. No longer can we be complacent. No longer can we rest on the hope that some Hallmark movie miracle moment is going to come into the lives of our loved ones and our friends and open their wayward eyes and break their hard heart. No longer can we sit back and hope for some lightning bolt from the sky or some unexplained miracle to come down from heaven and turn the hearts of those around us. The miracle has come down and He rose again and ascended and He's seated at the right hand of God and He's given us who believe in Him now a commandment. He said all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. The King has commanded us to go out and preach the gospel to the lost and keep doing it to this end. Not just that they hear but that men and women who are against the gospel and scoffers of the gospel or indifferent to the gospel or they could care less about the gospel or give a polite nod to the gospel right now but nothing more until those come and they are made disciples to the point that they take up their cross every day though it be hard, though it is frustrating, though we always seem to fall short to the point that we even seem hopeless ourselves at times in trying to do it. They would come to the point that they become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they have heard the gospel preached to them over and over and over until God did what He intended to do through it. Many priests who had no doubt scoffed and opposed the gospel as it was being lived out in front of them became obedient to it. Many people in Jerusalem who had rejected it before just passingly became disciples of it. Why? Because the gospel continued to be preached more and more and more and more. And when we see lostness around us, the answer is not to just hope. And the answer is not to only pray. Yes, by all means we have to pray. But then we must also preach. Yes, others must be sent, but you must also speak. Yes, we must be hearers, but we also be heralds of the Word. We must communicate to see converts. And we can go into our workplaces, and we can go into our communities, and we can go into our schools, and we can go into our backyards, and we can go into our living rooms. And parents, we can go into our children's bedrooms, or we can go into the bedroom with our spouse, or we can go into our neighbor's house or wherever and we can boldly preach the gospel one more time and one more time and one more time knowing that we have hope that it will take traction because our God, the God of all creation, who does all that He pleases, has said this in Isaiah 55. He said, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We have to preach the gospel. We are the only hope the world has at this point. Let's pray. 